And so we can't possibly go through all of Paul's letters sufficiently um, in one class. So I left some material for you there. But the big things that I wanted to talk about today, rather than the specifics of each letter, hopefully we'll be able to get into a little bit of that, but, but are some of the big themes uh, that Paul seems to address in all of his letters. And as you know, in this class, we've kind of been going through and tracing the story, how all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is telling one story, and in particular, it's looking for a promised seed, a promised son. And we talked about how the Gospels show that Jesus Christ is that son. He has come, he has fulfilled uh, everything that was prophesied and testified about him uh, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and then Acts kind of uh, explodes, going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, And we looked at that the past two weeks. And then today is kind of going back because Acts told us about the missionary journeys. And now we're seeing them or hearing them really from Paul's perspective or some of the things that he writes either to churches that he visited or churches that he planted or even some churches that he didn't know. So this is kind of going back in time a little bit. And in your handout too, I provided, um, based on Reverend Keel's book, I put the dates that he had in there for the different books. There is some debate about when uh, the different books were written, but I provided the ones uh, for you that were from Reverend Keel as well. All of Paul's books, uh, epistles, were written sometime between 32 AD and 70 for sure uh, because he didn't um, write at all about the destruction of the temple. And also... Most people think that he died around 65 AD. So he wasn't writing much after that point. Um, And most likely he was beheaded by, uh, under the Nero regime is is the story. So probably 65, 66, 67 uh, AD, somewhere in that time frame. But today we want to look at Paul's letters. Last week we looked at the Damascus Road experience and we recognized that Paul was called By the Lord Jesus Christ, literally, he was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so sometimes people look at the Damascus Road experience, and they just think that it's one of those things, or he maybe was called, but he wasn't commissioned, or he's commissioned, but he wasn't really converted. We would say all of those things. He was called, he was converted, and he was commissioned. And we looked at Philippians 3 in particular, where that seems to be what Paul is saying about what his life was as a Pharisee and what his life is uh, as a Christian. And we looked at that last week. And then it's real interesting to note Paul's awareness of his calling and of his commission. In Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, he starts them off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. (laughs) He couldn't be more aware of the reality that he has a calling upon his life and he has a specific uh, gifting and mission that he's to do. And in particular, he's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles and that that was God's plan all along. So through his mission and through his ministry as well, he wants to make it really clear uh, that this is part of his um, identity, part of his calling, part of his commission, um, what, what he's supposed to do. And Paul is the author of 13 letters. And sometimes when you read those, uh, you'll recognize that they're either co-authors or people that wrote with him that wasn't unusual in antiquity at all. He had so many different traveling companions, as you know, as you read through Acts even. uh, 
John, Mark, Silas, Barnabas, Luke, Timothy, Titus were all with him at one time or another. As a matter of fact, there are 95 people that are identified with Paul throughout Acts and uh, his letters. So it's really wonderful to recognize, right, Paul isn't doing this on his own. He always had a ministry partner or partners or people with him or people alongside of him. You know, there's no sense in which Christianity is an individual sport, right? It's a team game uh, from beginning to end, even in terms of the ministry itself. They were often sent out uh, in groups or sent out by twos, and Paul always had a traveling companion and someone with him. It's not a major point, but it is something for us to be mindful of, even in how we think about missionary work and church planting and, and other things as well. Uh, two, two are better, better than one. And then one of the, the great lessons that I probably should have known before seminary, but I'll never forget in seminary, is that Dr. Godfrey one time was asking about the golden age of the church. Because a lot of times people think, well, the golden age of the church was in the first century, you know, and everything was new and it was fresh and they got everything right, right? And he said, well, which one of you would want to take a call to Galatia or which one of you would want to take a call to 1 Corinthians, right? It's interesting to think about that there really is no golden age of the church. Even from the beginning, um, it was a mixed bag. Even from the beginning, there was some messiness to it. But even from the beginning, the Lord was accomplishing his purposes in and through the church and in, his th- in and through his people. So sometimes it gets easy for us to think back or hearken to an era that, well, it must have been better. They must have done everything right. And there were all kinds of challenges. And so in some of Paul's letters, he has what we call occasional letters. He wrote them for a specific occasion. So for instance, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are written to address all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity and false worship and uh, all kinds of other issues, disunity, disharmony uh, that are infecting the church. And in Galatia, it was written specifically to counteract a false gospel that was already uh, coming up uh, in the area. And so there's occasions sometimes where Paul writes for a specific occasion to address those matters to the churches which are, of course, good for all churches in all ages, but specifically, they were written to address something. And then there are general letters as well. For instance, Romans. Uh, Paul hadn't been there uh, at the time that he wrote Romans. He had longed to be there. He didn't really know the people there. He hadn't planted a church there, but he writes to them, and those uh, truths are for those churches and also for us as well. And there's a pattern that appears over and over in Paul's writing, and you've heard it in this church a lot, either from the pulpit or in Sunday school classes or whatever, and that there's both the indicative uh, and the imperative, and that Paul always grounds the imperatives of the Christian life in the indicatives. But what are those? Remind me, what, what's an indicative? Yeah. It's indicating something that's true about you, right? It's telling you something. You are called. You are forgiven. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are loved. You are righteous. You are destined for glory, right? Those are things that are true about you. It's indicating what the reality is of your life in Jesus Christ. And then what's an imperative? Yeah, what you're called to do. It's a command, right? To do X, Y, and Z. And we want to recognize that in the gospel, in the scriptures, that the indicative is always rooted in the imperative. So it's not if you do these things, then you'll be a Christian. It's because you're a Christian, now do these things. 
you've heard me talk before about Pinocchio. I think that the Disney version of Pinocchio has this weird false gospel that's kind of Roman Catholic-ish or evangelical-ish, where Pinocchio is a block of wood, and the blue fairy comes and sprinkles some fairy dust on him and says, if you are brave, if you are true, if you are honest, then you'll be a real boy. So it kind of like gives him a little grace to get going, and if he's brave, if he's true, if he's honest, then he'll be a real boy. What's radical about the gospel is that Jesus comes at the very beginning in the Holy Spirit and says, you are a real boy. You are a real girl. Now go and do these things. Not for my favor, but from my favor. Not to cooperate with or to earn or to merit your salvation, but because you're saved, because I'm your savior, because you're new, because you're forgiven, because you're loved, because over and over and over. And so all of the imperatives that we have, and we really need to teach and preach the imperatives of the Christian life with teeth, but all of them are grounded in the reality and the indicative that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully satisfied for all of our sins and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's a radically different religion. That's an important gospel and an important distinction to be able to get. And all of Paul's letters address these in one way or another. And one of our professors at seminary used to talk about the indicatives and the imperatives like a tennis match. And I thought that was a really great example. In terms of some books, like Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all indicatives. <laughs> And then there are imperatives in chapters 4 through 6, but there are zero imperatives in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. But most of the time, you see this volley lob of an indicative, and then in light of that, do an imperative, and then another indicative, and then another imperative. And sometimes people get confused because they'll either just focus on one and not the other. They'll either get so latched into the imperative that they forget the indicative that it comes from, or they're so latched onto the indicative that they don't realize, hey, there's something for me to do in light of this and because of this and because I'm part of the new creation. And it's really lovely to be able to just think of it as a volley match back and forth. And as preachers and as teachers and as Christians, we need to be able to embrace both. We need to have the order right, The imperatives are rooted in and grounded in the indicative, but we are called to do things as part of the new creation, not in order to be part, but because we are part of the new creation in Jesus Christ. There's something radically different, an indicative that has been true. You were dead, now you're alive. You were in your sins, now you're righteous. You were an enemy, now you're a child. Those things are true. And so Paul, over and over us, is calling us to live like what we are, not to become something that we're not. Live like who you are. You're a child of the king. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're loved beyond your wildest imagination. And so he's calling us over and over to live that way. Any questions about that? Comments? All right. So some of the main... Sometimes also people think of Paul as primarily a theologian. And of course, we want to say Paul's a theologian, but he's an evangelist. He's a missionary. He's an apostle. He's a pastor. He's a teacher. And you can see all of that coming out. We don't want to collapse it all into 
as if he's a theologian and he just sat aside, you know, writing these heady things. None of that was really true for Paul. He was always thinking about it in terms of the life of the people that he was called to serve. He was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was a pastor. He loved the congregation and he loved the people that he served. Think of the fact that 95 people are mentioned in his letter. He knows people. He's cared about them. He's prayed with them. He's traveled with them. He's fellowshiped with them. He's suffered with them. He's been a part of and involved in the life of Christians. That's really important. And that comes across when he's, when he's writing as well. So certainly, he's a theologian. But he's, that's never separated from any of the other things. An evangelist, a missionary, an apostle, a pastor. All those things go together. And so the main themes, right? All of you could come up with a different list, probably. But these things, I would submit to you that you can't read Paul's letters and not come away with the fact that these are crucial and highlighted by him. First and foremost is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over and over, he emphasizes that he is an apostle uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, which is really important to recognize that it's not only the message that Paul is called to preach, but it's the very method that God uses to bring about his purposes. Paul's called to tell the the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great uh, love with which he loved us even before the foundation of the world, sent his son, Jesus Christ. We've been made alive together with him. We've been declared righteous in him. We've been forgiven in him. And so that message itself is uh, what Paul was sent to preach, but it's that method that God uses to draw people to himself. It's through the preaching of the gospel that we come to know the Lord. And it's really important that it's not just the power of God unto conversion, but it's the power of God unto salvation, the full-orbed complex of everything that we have in Christ, all of his blessings. You're sanctified through the word. You're encouraged through the word. Uh, It's the gospel from beginning to end. One of my friends wrote a book called The Gospel-Driven Life. Um, And, you know, from beginning to end, from A to Z. It's not that you move on from the gospel. Yeah, 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 we got it. We've been regenerated. We're converted. We're forgiven. Now it's up to us. No, 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 from beginning to end. And you need to hear over and over about the gospel and the good news of, of Jesus Christ And so that's not only Paul's message, but also his method. And it's really clear. You cannot read his 13 letters and think, well, the gospel, shmashpul, you know. Maybe it's important. (laughs) It's essential. It's central to everything he's done. He identifies that he is called and commissioned as an apostle to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then... Another central theme or emphasis is that the righteous shall live by faith. And so sometimes we talk about being justified by faith alone. That comes out really clearly in Paul's letters, in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Philippians, in 1 Corinthians. Over and over we recognize that the righteous shall live by faith. And in our circle, sometimes it gets a little bit of a tendency to collapse the gospel down to equaling justification. And I couldn't be more thankful 
for the reality that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But there's so much more to the gospel benefits that we receive. And we even say that in our catechism. We receive Christ plus most of his blessings, right? Christ plus what? All of his blessings. Justification is one of them, for sure. But guess what, beloved? Your sanctification is part of the gospel blessings that you receive. Your glorification, your calling, your regeneration, your uh, righteousness, your adoption, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, all of that, you receive Christ plus all of his blessings. But Paul nonetheless really wants to hit home that our righteousness comes through faith alone, not through works of the law. Through works of the law, how many people will be righteous, beloved? None. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really clear, again, in Paul. It's amazing that sometimes people are confused about that. Just a cursory reading of Paul, you could say, oh, this seems to be really important. We're justified through faith. And that faith itself is a gift, we read, over and over. And that the righteous shall live by faith. And that was Father Abraham, right? So he's not making up something new. Father Abraham, was he justified by works of the law or by faith, beloved? By faith. And so are all who are sons or daughters of Abraham. They're justified by faith. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we would say. And so in that vein, then, not only does he want to highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ as both the message and the method that he uses, and that the righteous shall live by faith, but also that Jesus Christ is the promised son and seed. So again, that's, in this book, we've been tracing this story from beginning to end and this seed. And Paul is now looking back and saying he's come. He was the one who was crucified. He's the one who's risen. He's the one who's ascended. I saw him uh, on the road to Damascus. That one is the promised one. And Paul, as a Hebrew, as a Pharisee, as someone who knew the scriptures really well, unpacks the scriptures to show over and over that this isn't something new that he's doing, but this is a fulfillment of what the scripture said, of what the prophecy said. Even as Pastor drew out today as Jesus was healing someone, that this is exactly what Isaiah said. This is what, what's happening. You shouldn't miss it. Isaiah said he was going to do four things. He did four things. And Paul will say over and over, this is according to the scripture, or this is as was prophesied, or make the connections with different scriptural characters, or, or what have you. So that he's rooting and grounding the whole thing, not in his own insight, or his own thought, or his own speculation, but in the word of God. And what it said, and what it promised, now fulfilled in the word of God incarnate, in Christ Jesus. And so over and over, uh, throughout Paul's writings, we read that. A really good example of that is the first and last Adam, where Paul makes the connection both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, that what happened in Adam affected all of humanity, and what happens in Jesus Christ affects all those who are his and has consequences for all those who are don't, don't as well. So he's drawing on the very first human being. He's going all the way back to creation and said, in Adam, everybody fell. Everybody was ruined. Everybody was under wrath and under condemnation. And there is no way for them to make themselves right with God. They're going to have to be made right with God by God. And then there's a, 
the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And it's through him that righteousness comes. Just as sin and disobedience came through one man, so righteousness and life come through another man. He's really taking all of scripture and saying, this is it. This is the story. Don't don't miss it. And I'm here to tell you about him. Paul has a fascinating life, and it would be interesting to sit down with him over a beer, if people drank beer, mom, um, or a coffee or something like that. But it'd be really interesting to sit down and chat with him about those things. But he doesn't tell much about his life. He does tell some things. And so we do learn about shipwrecks, and we do learn about some beatings, and we do learn about some other really interesting things. But more than anything, he just wants to placard Jesus Christ. He just wants you to know and to love Jesus Christ. And he wants to warn you about the consequences of not coming, of not repenting, of not believing in Jesus Christ. He's passionate about this. This is his his compelling conviction and commission, and he's not distracted by it. You never read Paul and think, gosh, he really didn't know what he was supposed to be doing, or he's really confused about his message, or he's really confused about his method, or he lacked assurance that what Jesus said was going to be true, right? You never find any of that in Paul. He's so absolutely confident that Jesus is the Christ and that the word of God is authoritative and then everything that it says will come true. There's a perfect correspondence between what God says and what God does. And Paul's banking on that for all of humanity, for all of history, for the church, for you. And so he really um, highlights that a lot. The next thing, um, you can't read Paul without thinking that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. Not just a good idea. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. So see how some of these themes come out just in this little section here. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, message and method, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of some importance. First importance, what I also received, right? He didn't make it up. This was given to him. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Imperative indicative. 
imperative, indicative, imperative, indicative. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised, um, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if indeed the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ will perish. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Sounds important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to everything Paul preaches and believes. And he saw the risen and ascended Christ, right? The other disciples saw the risen Christ. The Apostle Paul saw the risen and ascended and glorified Christ, the one who commissioned him and called him to do this. This is transformational for him and his message. And so the resurrection isn't just some fanciful thing. Sometimes people will even talk in our society about, well, the idea of the resurrection is important. But Christianity will have none of that. He's saying, look, if Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead then all the pity and the mockery that we receive as Christians, we deserve. Worst of all, we're still in our sins. There's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no Savior. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, our preaching is in vain. It's futile. It's worthless. It's because he's alive, because he is risen, because he has ruled and reigned, because he's conquered sin, because he's conquered Satan, because he's conquered death, because he is the Lord of lords, the one ruling and reigning and sends the Holy Spirit, that we can even have life, that we can even have the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the heart to believe and everything. It comes from him. He is risen. It makes all the difference in the world. It's not just a minor doctrine. As a matter of fact, it's based on these historical realities. Yes, Jesus lives in my heart. But he lives in my heart because he was crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day rose again and ascended into heaven. It's the historical realities that we proclaim today as a congregation, as a people of God, when we said the Apostles' Creed together, didn't we? We recognize the reality that he is that he is risen and that he is coming again. Like everything is banked on that reality. And over and over, Paul talks about that. It comes out in many different ways. It's not just that he did it or he's a moral example, but he did it as our substitute. He did it for us. It says we have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And we have been raised to newness of life with Christ. Yes, he's an example, but he is a substitute, and it's in him, through the Holy Spirit, that we even do these things. You are dead to sin, and you are alive to Christ. You have been crucified, and you are raised to newness of life. You're already seated, in some sense, with Christ in the heavenly places. And so when you came forward today, before you received the Lord's Supper, uh, the pastor even said, uh, lift your hearts to the Lord. And he said, we lift our hearts to the Lord. Where is he? He's ruling and reigning in heaven. 
in a physical body. And by faith, through the Holy Spirit, we are participating in that. Not just remembering it, but we are partakers, we are sharers. This body is broken for you. This blood was shed for you. Take, eat, remember, and believe. As surely as you take that bread, as surely as you drink that wine, so surely the body and the blood were shed for you and that you have a share in that. It's part of your inheritance. And not just are you being united to Christ, but we're being united to one another. God accomplishes things through it. The resurrection is so significant. And in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, it's not just that we believe Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, which is wonderful news, but we too will be raised from the dead. Sin and death don't have the last word for us. Jesus has the last word. We will be raised. We will be with him. We will see him as he is. I really appreciate it in Pastor's sermon today when he's talking about no more sighing. How many of you have had those just sighs of the crushing realities of your own sin or living in a sin-cursed world or being sinned against? And you're just like, <sighs> you just want it to be over. Guess what? It will be over. Surely as Christ Jesus came, so surely he's coming again. And Paul's letters, particularly to the Corinthians and particularly to the Thessalonians, are saying, hey, don't be deceived. He is coming. And he's coming again. And he's coming soon. And it makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't seem like soon from our perspective, but it's on the near horizon. It's the very next thing to happen on the redemptive historical calendar is that Christ will come. And we will be with him. And we will see him. And we will see him as he is. And it even says we will be like him. Right? The space between what Christ is like and what I am like is a massive chasm. And in the twinkling of an eye, I will be like him. That's already started. He's already conforming me and you and all believers more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But that last thing is going to be so much more grand and glorious than we can possibly even imagine. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ then leads into other themes in Paul that talk about a new creation. That we're in the last days. We're in a new age. He talks about it in different ways. A new age, the last days, a new creation. Meaning everything changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament, all of the Old Covenant was looking forward to the coming of one. A seed, a son, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would conquer our enemies, who would rule and reign in righteousness forever. He would sit on the throne of David, and now we're saying he's come. And so there's already a new creation. We are living in the last days. We live between the tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming. And the time is short. And so Paul, you could tell, had an urgency and an expediency about that to just to go out and tell people about Jesus. Repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. Come. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. He will forgive your sins. He will make you righteous. He will give you peace with God. He will ultimately heal all your diseases and illness and sickness too. Everything. 
It's remarkable. And Paul's talking about that that new creation has already begun in us. And that's where it goes back again to the indicative and the imperative. And the tennis match. To remember the Pinocchio example I gave you. That in, the, in my sanctified version of Pinocchio. <laughs> the father comes to you in the son through the Holy Spirit and says, You're a real boy. You're a real girl. I've made you alive in Christ. You've been regenerated. You've been reborn by the word. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted. You are declared righteous. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. There's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from my love. Now as part of the new creation, I want you to go and do these things. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be forgiving. Be long-suffering. Not for God's favor, because that's how he's been with you. He's kind. He's tenderhearted. He's long-suffering. You're being conformed more and more, you see, to the image of your Lord and Savior, Jesus. They're not abstract virtues or abstract principles. We're looking and acting more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus, as through the Word and through the Spirit and through the sacraments and through the crucible of life, he conforms us more and more to him. Amen? And so then... That leads into the reality that Paul obviously cares about Christian living. Sometimes those in Reformed and Presbyterian circles get dinged for people thinking, well, you don't care how you live. If you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then what does it matter how you live? And that would be a massive misrepresentation of what we confess and what we believe and what the scriptures say. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul cares deeply about how we live because of the reality that you are part of the new creation. He's flummoxed and perplexed at times. Like, how can you keep doing X, Y, and Z when that's not even true of you anymore? You're acting like the old guy, but that's not true anymore. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Notice the clarity of the law, the clarity of the gospel, and then our life of gratitude. This is guilt, grace, and gratitude. If you're ever wondering sometime, what do I say to somebody in a witnessing situation if you're trying to talk to them about the gospel or you want to get the law-gospel distinction right? Just remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The worst news you could possibly hear, right? This isn't you're sick and you just needed a little medicine or a little help. This wasn't you were just kind of on a wrong path and you just need a little bit more information. This is you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you are under God's wrath and under condemnation. What then do we do? I think God's scripture doesn't end at Ephesians 2, 4, 3, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So the faith and the righteousness are both the gift of God. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul cares deeply about Christian living. But remember we said at the very beginning that all of the imperatives of Paul are grounded in the indicative. So do you hear the indicatives here? You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, saved you, raised you up, gave you a new life, seated you with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The faith and the righteousness are a gift, and you were created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. How can you not? You have to. It's part of the new creation. You've been reborn. You're alive. You're not Pinocchio. You're not a block of wood. You are a real boy and a real girl loved by the Holy Trinity from all of creation. And then they acted in space and time to make you theirs, to make you new, to forgive you, to justify you, to adopt you, to love you. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, dwells within you. Mind-numbing. have no idea how to explain that. The third person of the Holy Trinity dwells within you and makes you heartily willing and ready to live unto him. It's a remarkable thing to even think about. And I submit to you that there are other things, but if you read Paul's 13 letters, you would get, all right, the gospel of Jesus Christ is primary. And these other things are actually benefits of the gospel. (laughs) But the gospel of Jesus Christ is primary. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the message he preaches and the method that the righteous shall live by faith. Jesus is the one. There is salvation in no other name under heaven by which people must be saved, as the scripture said and fulfilled in every point. The resurrection is important for life, for salvation, for justification, We don't worship a dead hero. We're united to a living Savior. He is risen. And we're now part of the new creation, and it matters how we live. So turn, if you will, we'll close with this. One of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture, what Paul writes at the end of Romans chapter 8. This passage really goes from there being no condemnation in Christ to there being no separation from him. What a remarkable reality to live in. There's no condemnation for you, beloved. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And you are declared righteous. And then he's going to say there's nothing that can separate you from that. This is what he says. 
Let's actually start in verse 26. He's talking about prayer here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within you and is working in you. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to the purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it condemned to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me close with Paul's prayer for the church at the end of Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family and on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.